Church, we sing it because we really do believe it, right? That we open up God's word, we hear God's voice. That's why we do it every Sunday, and so I invite you to grab your Bibles right now and open in the Old Testament to the book of Esther and chapter 5. Esther chapter 5. Uh, my name is Travis. I serve as one of the pastors here. We are continuing our series, uh, our summer series through Esther. If you're using a church Bible, you'll be helped to follow along. The text is on page 413. 413. And while you're finding that, um, I was thinking this week that when my parents were kids, there wasn't really season finales very often for a television show. Um, the TV episodes were pretty much just episodic, you just season ended, and then you picked up again in September or October. And then when I was a kid, season finales became a little bit more common, um, particularly some of the, the big cliffhangers, you remember, um, who shot JR? I, I wasn't allowed to watch that one, but I heard about it. Um, will Captain Picard remain a Borg or not? That was particularly big in my life. Um, will Ross wind up with Rachel? That was... Pretty much every season ended up that way. And then these days, um, we don't, we don't uh, just have season finales, we also have mid-season finales, uh, probably to drive up ratings or whatever the case may be, but I wanted to think about this morning's sermon as something of a mid-season uh, finale, because next week we're going to take a break from the book of Esther, and we're going to ask Angel Gomez to preach, oh, it's painful to say it, his final sermon here at MCC. For those of you who have not heard the news, uh, not only are the Gomez's expecting another baby uh, to be added to their brood, but he will also be uh, an associate pastor soon in uh, just north of Philadelphia. And so next Sunday, we're going to be saying goodbye to the Gomez's. We're going to hear his last sermon preached. You will not want to miss that. Um, so uh, if that's next Sunday, then that means that this Sunday is our mid-season finale. Uh, if you've been here the last several weeks, you know we've been working through this book, which is the only book of the Bible that never explicitly mentions the name of God. But then we begin to realize that God is everywhere and in every place throughout the whole thing. Um, so, quick moment of public confession. I did wake up this morning thinking about another woman. Her name is Esther. <laughs> and I've been thinking about her constantly for the last couple of months. Um, for the benefit of our guests, I don't want to weary those of you who have been here, um, but a quick recap. Esther, she's this uh, fairly young Jewish woman um, who, based almost entirely on her good works, she gets elevated by this narcissistic, egocentric Persian emperor to the level of a queen. Roughly five years into her marriage, her biological cousin but adopted dad named Mordecai somehow ends up inciting the wrath of the king's right-hand man named Haman. And so Haman convinces the king, Xerxes, to declare a pogrom, the, the obliteration of the Jewish people across the Persian Empire. And so that's kind of where we left it off last week, that, that Esther, now being made aware of this decree, she's got to make a choice. Is she going to shrink back and try and protect herself and her Jewish heritage, or is she going to step forward and plead her people's case? So that was the end of chapter four, and she made her choice. She said, you know, in three days, I want you to fast for me on my behalf. I'm going to fast too, and in three days, I'm going to go before the king, and if I perish, I perish. So that's where we left off. This morning, we flip the page to the next chapter, Esther chapter five, beginning at verse one. 
Brothers, sisters, friends, family, this now is the very word of our Lord. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight and he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter and the king said to her, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you even to the half of my kingdom. And Esther said, if it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. And the king said, bring Haman quickly so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, what is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Then Esther answered my wish and my request is... If I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, And he sent and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh, and Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, even Queen Esther let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. Yet all this is worth nothing to me, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, let a gallows 50 cubits high be made. And in the morning, tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman. (laughs) And he had the gallows made. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Okay, so first glance, hmm, kind of feels like chapter five is a bit of an unfortunate chapter to have as a mid-season finale. <laughs> it's a little bit of a down chapter, you know? The action doesn't really drive forward here the way it has in some previous weeks. It does end with something of a cliffhanger, so there's that. But when you look closer, what I want you to see Really, the, 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 the main point, I think, of our teaching this morning, what I want you to see here is that contained in chapter 5 is a clash between two completely different world views. It's kind of like this. Once upon a time, there was a wee little woodpecker. He wasn't the largest woodpecker. wasn't the smallest. He was just average. And every day, this wee little woodpecker, he did what woodpeckers do, which is what? Yeah, he pecked. <laughs> and he pecked and he pecked, you know, day after day, year after year. It wasn't entirely clear to him why he pecked, but, you know, like deep down, this telephone pole that he just kept on working on and working on and working on, deep down he had this dream of something big happening 
to this telephone pole, you know? So packed through storms, through rain, through sunshine, didn't matter, until finally, one evening, in the midst of a thunderstorm, a lightning bolt, as if from heaven, ripped down and tore that telephone pole into two. Wood went flying, feathers went flying, this little woodpecker, he's thrown back 20 yards, he's flapping his wings, and, and, and then when finally when the smoke clears, is nothing but splinters and wires on the ground, they're still you know, sparking and, and sizzling. And once the, once the woodpecker's ears stopped ringing and he came to his senses, he went straight away to his friends, gathered him up, brought him back, and he said, guys, look what I did. <laughs> you ever been that little woodpecker? You excel in school, and you say, look what I did. You work hard year after year, season after season in your job, and then things start to pick up, and your career takes off. And you say, maybe even out loud, look what I did. You ever been that woodpecker? Got a big house, fancy vacation, great kids, and you say, look what I did, look what I did. Look what I did. Of course, the other approach, and the one that's a, a little less immediately satisfying to our ego, is to admit, I've been... I've been pecking away at whatever it is the Lord has given me to peck away at here. And then suddenly, my victory, my success, my achievement, I've got this, I've got this sneaking suspicion. It's not really all me that's behind it. And of course, if you did admit that, well, you'd be exactly right. You'd actually be right in line with a biblical world and life view. For instance, John chapter 3 says quite clearly, a man can receive nothing except it be given from heaven. Or James chapter 1, every good and perfect gift is from, do you know? Above, coming down from the Father. See, what we're given in Esther chapter 5, in this Old Testament narrative, this historical narrative, it really happened. What we're given here is this dramatic clash of two worldviews. You got the first one, that's exemplified by, by Esther. It's this God word. I don't know if she's really godly yet. She's in progress. She's in process, like the rest of us. But we got this God word, theocentric or God-centered life. And then in contrast to that, we see Haman, and we see this self-word, or anthropocentric, man-centered life. It's a life more and more that's turned in on itself. Uh, Liam Gallagher, he's the pastor at 10th Presbyterian, which is a very significant, influential church in Philadelphia, um, and he reminds us that at its root, the story of the Bible, in fact, I think we could say, the story of all human history is the story of God and the devil, Christ and Antichrist. Okay, they're not equal and opposite, far from it. But since time began, there's this grand cosmic conflict. And if you only notice one or the other, for instance, if you only notice the God who is there, that's good, but like the Puritans said, 
It's as if we're one-eyed. We're not seeing the whole picture. Because the devil, like it or not, has a walk-on part. You see it first in Genesis chapter 3, way back at the beginning of your, your Bible. And then we realize, well, all marital discord has its roots right there in chapter 3. And then we see the first murder in chapter 4. And then we see um, mass campaigns of, of brutality and killing in chapter 5. The entire story of history is one of conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. In the New Testament, Peter tells us that Satan is like a roaring lion walking around, searching for someone to what? Yeah, devour. And then in the Old Testament, passages like this, long before the New Testament, what we find is that a guy like Haman, who demands that others bow down and worship him, he is a walking, talking representation of the evil one. Okay, so... From there, as the camera zooms in then on chapter 5, all of that big picture story of redemption informs this scene of a woman walking across a courtyard in royal robes. And, you know, the banners are waving from the palace towers above her. Um, Banners are on the king's gate. Guards and officials are passing her by, and a few are even doing a double take because this ordinarily stunning woman appears today as if her, sink, or her cheeks are a little, a little sunken in. She looks pale. There's dark circles under her eyes. Of course, it's because she's been fasting for three days. We know this. And as she appear, appear, uh, prepares to approach the king, After these three days of fasting, she's going to plead for the lives of the Jewish people. The tension point here, if you weren't with us last week, is that laws of the Medes and the Persians, they can never be changed, right? Written in stone and then some. Laws of the Medes and the Persians. And one of the laws of the Medes and the Persians is that you cannot approach the king unsummoned. If you do, it's a capital crime. It is worthy and can receive immediate execution unless the king, in his good grace, holds out a scepter as a uh, royal sign of acceptance that you can still approach him even though he didn't call for you. And when you think about this guy, King Xerxes... I mean, we're rolling the dice, it would seem. This guy is highly unstable on a good day. Who knows how he's going to react? But Esther goes anyway. The law is against her. Nobody was allowed to interrupt the king. The government is against her. There's a decree that she could be slain here. Her gender is against her. <laughs> right? I mean, Xerxes, to say that he was misogynistic is an epic understatement. In a, in a sense... Even her fast is against her. Because very few of us here look our best after three days of no water and no food. And yet despite all that opposition, Romans chapter 8 reminds us, if God is for us, then who can be? Yeah. So here's the lesson, church. In a God word, in a, in a theocentric God-centered life. Uh, Tony Evans, he once said, our faith is measured by our footsteps. By our walk, not our talk. By our life, not our lips. 
So in Esther, she walks into that magnificent throne room, and the, you know, the pillars, they are, um, there's 36 of them. They were 65 feet tall, every one of them. It's immediately apparent the entire room is structured so that the king is the focal point of everything, and yet ha- growing inside her, in Esther, there's this, there's this conviction that's beginning to form that, that she owes honor to a king higher than this one. So there's Xerxes, is arrayed in all his power, he's mighty, he's majestic, he holds out the scepter, she doesn't get executed, that's a good start, and then now for the next several verses, is almost comical, if you have the eyes to see it, what happens here, the way that this young woman has ostensibly these mighty men eating out the palm of her hand. Verse 3, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? You know how uh, curiosity killed the cat? Curiosity also caught the king. She says, I want to have a feast for you and Haman tonight. And he replies, verse 5, bring Haman quickly so that we may do as Esther has asked. This is going very well. Not only did the king not chop off her head, but now the king is suddenly taking direction from the queen. And we think to ourselves, it's it's almost like there's someone unseen behind the scene here. I think of Proverbs 21. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it whichever way he pleases. So now we're toward the end of the feast, verse 6. They were, quote, drinking wine, of course. They drink a lot of wine in this book. And the king is leaning back. He's feeling pretty grand, you know. He's got his right-hand guide beside him. He's got his good-looking bride beside him. He's got a whole bucket full of pride with him. He's feeling magnanimous. The king said to Esther, what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. I mean, can you hear this guy? If this were a musical, he'd be singing it. (laughs) I'd do anything for you, dear. Anything for you, dear. Anything for you. Thank you. Robin will not let me on the praise band. This is when I have a microphone. I give it my best shot. Up to half the kingdom he's promising, right? For crying out loud. <laughs> I mean, it's just an idiom. We understand that. It's not just to be taken literal, but still. And I, I suppose Esther, in that moment, she could, in fact, I wonder if she was tempted to ask for something for herself. Self-preservation. As now there's an edict to wipe out an entire Jewish people of which she is one. I wonder if she was tempted. But instead, she leans forward, and she says, I'll tell you what I want, what I really, really want. (laughs) Well, tell me what you want, what you really, really want. I want to, I want to, I want to have another dinner party tomorrow. That's a surprise. For whatever reason, she doesn't move forward with her request here. She senses now is not the time, and instead she says, I want to throw you a second feast tomorrow. And again, I want you to bring your new bestie, Hitler. I mean, Haman. (laughs) (laughs) 
And now for the rest of the chapter, we have the camera moves off of Esther, right? And it moves on to this guy, Haman. We move off of a Godward, theocentric life, and we move on to a self-word, man-centered life. So just watch him for a second with me. Haman walks out of the feast. He was now invited to a second feast. So he walks out of the feast this night. He's invited to a second feast tomorrow night. And he is feeling like a million bucks right now. The awesome sauce is back, he is thinking. The king loves me. The queen loves me. I'm doing very, very well. In short order, all of the pesky Jews are going to be dead. And then his eyes turn to slits again. Because sitting there at the king's gate is once again still in sackcloth, still in ashes, just like last week, still in mourning, is Mordecai. And he doesn't stand for Haman. He doesn't tremble for Haman. He doesn't bow down to Haman. And Haman is infuriated. You see how fragile this guy is? He could not even hold on to the satisfaction of dinner because his pride wouldn't let him. See, when I am a proud person, nothing can ever really satisfy me because no one and no thing can ever meet my standards. I can't take satisfaction in this because I don't have this. Church, listen up. Pride and discontentment, they sleep in the exact same bed. I've had to learn it and relearn it so many times in the course of my own life. Pride and discontentment, they sleep in the exact same bed. That is why the poet said, pleasures become like poppies spread. You seize the flower, but its bloom is shed. Or like the snow falls in the river, a moment white, then melts forever. So satisfied. He was so, had so much pleasure in that dinner. And one Jew's defiance robs Haman of all that satisfaction. So what does he do? He goes home and he tries to get it all back. He gathers up his wife. That's verse 10. He gathers up his friends. He reminds them all how awesome he is. I got riches. I got sons. I got promotions. You ever hung out with this guy? Hmm. You ever been this guy? <laughs> Where your, your self-worth is so tied up with your net worth? Let me, let me show you this new painting I got. It's really expensive. Let me tell you about my kids. Wildly successful, every one of them. Oh, don't stop walking. I can tell you about them as I show you downstairs to my wine cellar. I think you're going to be really impressed by that. And the stories just go on and on. Like, a, like a, a wee woodpecker who thinks he's the one who split the telephone pole. We try to find satisfaction in the fragility of our accumulations and our accomplishments. But folks, if you haven't learned it yet, learn it well. Pleasure is a fickle goddess. 
And she will take her blessings just as quickly as she gives them. Pride, says William Barclay, pride is the ground in which all the other sins grow and the parent from which all the other sins come. Pride is the reason why at the end of this chapter, Haman has to plan a man's murder because that man's very presence stole his joy and so the only way to deal with it is to murder the man. And so, you know, his wife says to him, I got it. How about a gallows 50 feet high? Excuse me, 50 cubits high, which would have been 75 feet high. Um, also, don't, uh, don't think gallows old west when you picture this with the trap door and the hangman's noose. Um, in the Hebrew, the same word here, uh, it probably should be um, translated wooden beam. If the Romans were the ones who uh, perfected crucifixion, the Persians kind of got it started. This was their favorite way to execute people. Um, they would put up a big tall beam and then they would impale. They would hang people on it, as it were. And so I don't know if Haman's idea is a beam that is literally 75 feet tall or it was a tall beam that was then going to be placed in a high spot like on on a roof or a a parapet. But either way, it it has to be as high as his ego. And you you can see a smile spread across his face as he, as the chapter ends. Because it's a cliffhanger. What's going to happen next? Where's it all going to go? If the unseen God is the God behind the scene, when is this unseen God going to show up? It's a question that you might have found yourself asking from time to time. Because God's ways are not our ways and because God is he's never late, but he's rarely early. We often find ourselves like a little woodpeckers, don't we? <laughs> Just peck, peck, peck. The thing that God has given us to do. Wondering when the big thing will finally happen. Can I encourage you, church? Just peck, peck, peck. (laughs) Just do the next thing that God has given you to do. Make coffee for the Connect team. (laughs) Change your daughter's diapers. You know, write a sermon. (laughs) Coach your, your kid's soccer team. Whatever the next thing is. Do do it with this confidence. That when he is so pleased to, God will show up with a lightning bolt. Or if he's not pleased to, we just keep on peck, peck, pecking. Kingdom work in a small, undramatic kind of way. Confident that a Godward life is a long obedience in the same direction, right? A, a Godward life is defined, it's measured by our footsteps. It's it's about our walk, not our talk, by our life, not our lips. And that's the scene, that's the sense that we have here in Esther. And then I I just want to say this, as we read our Bibles backwards, okay, as we read Old Testament through the grid of the New Testament, it doesn't escape our notice that so much of the little things in chapter 5 seem to be pointing to the big things much later on. For instance, Esther was clothed in royal robes, but Jesus is clothed in robes of righteousness. 
Esther was mediator for her people because she was both Jewish and Persian. Jesus is mediator for his people because he's both human and divine. Esther waited three days to leave her chambers and save her people. Jesus waited three days to leave the grave and save the world. Esther was accepted into the presence of the king one time by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. You and I are welcomed into the presence of the king every time. Esther prepared a feast for her husband, but Jesus prepared the feast of the lamb for his bride. Xerxes offered Esther half his kingdom. Jesus hands to us his entire kingdom. Church, commit this day to live a Godward, not a selfward, to live a Godward life. Sometimes loud and dramatic, probably most of the time not. Along obedience in the same direction. A Godward life, pleasing to the Lord. And then we watch what God does. <laughs> Thank you for joining us for today's message. Medway Community Church would love to welcome you as our guest one day soon. Our church family meets every Sunday morning for worship and also offers a wide variety of small group and ministry opportunities. To learn more, please visit us on the web at medwaycommunitychurch.org. We look forward to seeing you soon. Washing all my shame.